It's time once again for the Go-Giver Podcast, where we explore five timeless principles that will increase the profitability of your business and the joy in your life. Now, here's your host, the co-author of The Go-Giver, Bob Berg. Hello again, I'm Bob Berg, and we have what I hope you'll find to be an interesting and value-packed show today. How does a cost-benefit analysis relate to one's happiness? We'll look at that in our thought of the day. And in our interview segment, an amazing discussion with Annie Duke that will take your decision-making ability to an entirely new level. That and more on today's show. I thank you for joining us. As human beings, our main motivation is happiness. Defined as the mental feeling of well-being, happiness is understood differently by each individual. People make decisions based on what they believe has the best chances of bringing them happiness within the limited choices they have. What are those limited choices? Well, five biggies are time, energy, knowledge, talent, and money. Not to mention, some choices that might bring us an immediate sense of happiness are likely to cause its opposite in the future. Other choices might bring us more happiness in the future, but less so near term. And I'm not necessarily referring to choices of immediate or long-term pleasure. Yes, if you enjoy sweets, you'll choose whether or not to eat that piece of cake now or delay your gratification. Which choice will bring you more happiness? Only you can decide that. But there are lots of other choices we must make throughout the day, each one based on the desire for happiness. This doesn't mean we'll always choose correctly. As one of my mentors, Harry Brown, often said, Individuals make mistakes, but every act is aimed at bringing happiness. This is where the cost-benefit analysis comes into play. Just as a CEO must constantly make decisions whether a choice will be more beneficial than harmful, we must constantly make these analyses with regards to our own happiness. In his classic, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World, the above-mentioned Mr. Brown taught a brilliant lesson in this regard. For example, let's say you did something wrong. Not illegal or unethical, of course, but extremely embarrassing. It's not something you'd ever want anyone to know. It might get found out. It might not. And you constantly worry about it. If you come clean and admit it, you might be disparaged or in some other way have to take some heat that will be a source of pain for you. However, the consequences will be significantly less than if it's discovered by someone else. On the other hand, it might never be discovered. No one will be hurt, no harm, no foul. So what do you do? In this fictitious example, it's a choice you will make because even deciding to do nothing is still a decision. The point is that in order to make this decision in a way intended to bring you happiness as you understand happiness, And within the limitations of available choices, you'll have to do a serious cost-benefit analysis. Hopefully, we don't have too many serious ones too often, but even the much smaller ones still require this type of analysis. For example, do I go out to dinner? Let's see. Have to get dressed, drive, sit around and wait, take a chance on food and service being good or not, pay more money, etc., but not have to put in a lot of personal effort and clean up afterwards. Or do I eat in? Easier physically in some ways, save money, don't have to battle the crowd, but must make the dinner, clean up, etc. Or how about do I fire Pat? Difficult and stressful conversation, 
feel bad for Pat, lose an already trained employee, but one who is rather lazy with a lousy attitude? Or do I keep Pat? This way I won't have to have the uncomfortable conversation or feel bad for his family, but now still stuck with Pat and cannot bring on someone else who might or might not be more productive. Decisions. Big ones, medium ones, small ones. We're constantly doing cost-benefit analyses intended to make us happier as we understand happiness and with lots and lots of limited choices. And that's okay. It's part of life. It keeps us thinking. It keeps us growing. And if we pay attention and act out of conscious awareness, we can consistently make better choices. And we'll be happier. And with that in mind, up next we speak with Annie Duke, a woman who's written an absolutely amazing book, Thinking in Bets. And we'll discuss with her how to greatly increase our odds of making much better decisions. Great discussion with Annie Duke right after this. Would you like to close sales gentler, easier, and more effectively than ever before? Would you like to never again have to discount your prices? Would you like to become objection-proof? Would you like to learn the one thing that motivates every human being to action and the only reason why people ultimately buy? Do you want to more effectively than ever before communicate the exceptional value that you provide to your customers and clients? If you answered yes to these questions, then what you want is to learn how to sell the go-giver way. If you'd like to dramatically increase your ability to influence and sell, then check out my one-hour audio program, fully transcribed, titled Sell the Go-Giver Away. For more information, click the link in the show notes. Annie Duke is a World Series of Poker bracelet winner, winner of the 2004 Tournament of Champions, and the only woman to win the NBC National Poker Heads-Up Championship. Now as a professional speaker and decision strategist, she merges her poker expertise with her cognitive psychology graduate work at University of Pennsylvania. She's also a founder of How I Decide, a nonprofit that creates curricula and tools to improve decision-making and critical thinking skills for underserved middle schoolers. And she She's the author of what I believe is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant new book. It's titled Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. Her website is AnnieDuke.com, where you can learn more about her, her speaking services, her newsletter, her other resources, all of that listed in the show notes, including, of course, her new book, which is what we're going to talk about today. Hi, Annie. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Uh, terrific to have you with us. And before we even begin, I've got to tell you, and, and I, I guess I'm making a disclaimer here, I'm not a poker player. I've never watched it on TV, and I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't heard a lot about you before this. I'd heard your name, but not much more. So first, my apologies, but all this to say that I believe your book is one of the very best I've ever read in my life. It's already impacted me and my decision-making ability significantly. So even before we speak, uh, I'm suggesting to my awesome listeners, this is a book to get for yourself and for everyone you care about. It will help them. It will help you make better decisions. And our decisions have so much to do with the quality of our lives. Not everything, but an awful lot. We'll, in fact, we'll discuss that too. So, okay, Annie, I'm sorry. Welcome again. I, apparently, I couldn't help myself from saying that. Well, I, I have to say, I, I actually really appreciate your saying that because 
you know, one of the things that I do want people to know about this book is that you need not have ever played a single hand of poker right, right. Uh, in order to get uh, what what you need to out of this book. And it does actually give you kind of a fun glimpse into the world of mm-hmm. high stakes poker with some with some fun anecdotes, but nothing that you need to actually have played any of the game for. So Absolutely. I, I actually appreciate that you didn't know who I was and, <laughs> and you were reading my book fresh to it with no yeah. anchoring right. anything you had known about me before. So I'm going to thank you for that. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And yes, you absolutely pulled that off and your stories are fantastic. Uh, so <laughs> I want to bring you back to something near the beginning of the book, Annie, and practically every football fan remembers it. Closing seconds of Super Bowl 51. Seattle Seahawks have the ball second and goal on the Patriots one yard line. One of the best running backs on the NFL, Marshawn Lynch, the obvious call to run it across the goal line. But instead, highly regarded, greatly respected Seahawks coach Pete Carroll calls for a pass play, which is intercepted by Malcolm Butler, and that's the game. Worst call in NFL history, or was it something else? Well, the headline certainly thought that it was the worst call in Super Bowl history, at least most of them. Uh, I think one of them, actually, the headline was the worst call in Super Bowl history, <laughs> uh, aside from place, some places that actually called him an idiot. Um, so, you know, I think it's really interesting because post that really bad outcome of the interception, nobody seemed to have given Pete Carroll any credit for having thought it through mm-hmm. as if this world-class football coach, uh, didn't have any kind of good decision process behind that. And, and clearly because of the bad outcome, it was such a terrible decision. But I think that Pete Carroll actually gave us the best glimpse into what was happening there when he was interviewed on Good Morning America, and he was asked about it, and he said it was the worst result, result. of a Super Bowl call in history. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that is such a key distinction that he said the word result, because what what happens is that we really fall into this trap of looking at the outcome, the quality of the outcome in an event, and in this case, obviously, the interception was quite bad quality, uh-huh. and using that as a perfect signal to derive the quality of the decision that went into it. I encourage everybody to go read a guy named Benjamin Morris over on 538 to see a really great description of why that was actually quite a brilliant call. Mm-hmm. Mathematically, I go through a lot of the logic in the book. Yes, you do, beautifully, too. Yeah, yeah. so suffice it to say... Um, the chances of an interception were only about 1%. Uh, 99% of the time, the call either gets dropped, which stops the clock, or they win the game. And the Seahawks only had one timeout. So with that one timeout, he can either do two running plays, or he can take the pass play, either win the game or stop the clock, and then he still gets the two running plays Anyway, all for the cost of just a 1% chance of interception. So hopefully that will, whether you agree with the analysis or not, I think it's important to agree that just because it turned out badly doesn't mean that it was a bad call. Right. And you call that resulting, correct? Yes, exactly. So that's a term um, resulting. It's a very common term in poker. And it means exactly what it sounds like, which is having a result occur and using that to figure out whether a decision was good or bad. If it was a great outcome, it's a great decision. If it was a bad outcome, it's a bad decision. And while that's a reasonable strategy to use in a game like chess, which really doesn't have much of a luck element and there's no hidden information, you can see all of the pieces on the board, 
it's a really unreasonable strategy to use in life or in poker where there's all sorts of uncertainty from hidden information and luck. I think the best example I can give of that is I'm going to sort of put you on the spot here. Um, have you ever gone through a red light and not gotten in an accident? Exactly. Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to ask you about that. So go ahead and, and, and go ahead with that. That's a perfect, perfect example. Right. So if you were resulting and you got through the red light safely, what would you think? Oh, well, what I a great decision to go through that red light. Exactly. And then you might go through the red light again, right. which I'm guessing in the long run wouldn't, wouldn't work out very well for you. Exactly. Um, so there's all these hazards of working backwards from the outcome quality to the decision quality uh, in life. And again, in something like chess, that's not so bad, right? If you lose a game, you should probably go look for all the bad decisions that you made um, in or that led to the to the loss of the game. Again, because there isn't really a, a much of a luck element in, in, in chess. But, you know, in driving, in business, in life, in poker, um, there's a really strong luck element. So we want to try to disconnect the outcomes from the decisions as much as possible. So, so let's look at the at the premise then. Uh, thinking in bets, the name of the book. First, how do you define a bet? And so, why would you say that treating our decisions as bets, which is very counterintuitive, why is that so helpful to us? Well, I, I'm going to start with the first thing, and then I'll get to the definition. Um, so, uh, the reason why it's so helpful to think of our decisions as bets is because they are bets. Implicitly, whenever we make a decision, we're betting. So we might as well make it explicit because I think it will help our decision process. So I think that uh, what what happens is that we get hung up by thinking about betting in uh, the more traditional sense of, of being in a casino and risking money on some sort of decision that involves luck against another person, whether it's the house in a casino or another person where we're betting on a sports game or cards or something like that. But what a bet actually is, is a decision that's informed by our beliefs on a set of possible futures, right? So mm. we can't determine exactly what the future will hold, right? So every time that we make a decision, we're investing some set of resources. It might be money, but it could be our happiness, our time, right. our health, etc. cetera, mm -hmm. um, into that decision, foregoing all other decisions that we might be able to make really guessing or determining that we think that that will result in the best possible future. But we can't guarantee that. We're only going toward a set of possible futures, a set of the way that things could turn out. And I think that this idea that normally we think about betting is betting against another person, that that's part of what hangs us up. Because most of the bets that we make, most of the decisions we make are actually betting against ourselves. I because, love that part, yeah. Yeah, so when I make a decision, um, I just... I decide that the, the future Annie that's going to result from the decision I make will be better off more often than mm -hmm. the future Annie that might result from all the other decisions that I'm foregoing. Again, given, given the limited right. resources that so, I have. So one thing I took from that, in a sense, is that we don't have to feel guilty about a bad result so long as we went through the proper decision-making process, correct? That, that's exactly right. And I think on the flip side is that we shouldn't be so quick to pat ourselves on the back <laughs> when we have a good result. And right. believe me, that's a trade that you want to make because the pain of having a bad result, it mm -hmm. feels about twice as bad. We know this from work on loss aversion as the, the joy that we feel 
from a good result. But that's exactly right. I mean, if you go to the simple traffic example, right, if you if you follow all the laws of the road and you go through a green light and you get in an accident, hopefully you don't go and change your decisions and hopefully you don't right. feel about your dis- bad about your decision to drive or your decision to wait till the light is green in order to go through it. And on the flip side, hopefully when you make it through the red light safely, you don't pat yourself on the back so much for that result and think, wow, I, I should really be doing that again. Because whether, you know, when you're going through a green light, you're betting that you're increasing the probability of getting to your destination safely. And that's probably a pretty good bet. And that's really what all of our decisions are like, you know, informed by our past experiences, our beliefs. Three of the most powerful words we can ever say, Annie, are, I'm not sure. Now, this flies on the face of what it seems to be expected of us these days. So would you unwrap that? I'm not sure. Absolutely. So I'm so glad that you asked that. So I am a big proponent of I'm not sure. And here's here's the main reason, because it's actually a more accurate representation of the world. It's a more accurate representation, at least of the state, your state of knowledge of the world. Right. So think about something really simple, like you're sitting in a restaurant and you're trying to figure out whether you want to order the chicken or the steak. Right. Mm-hmm. Are, if you decide that you think that you'd be happier ordering the steak, are you sure? <laughs> of course not. Right. You might you might get an overcooked steak that's under seasoned or whatever. <laughs> you know, we don't know We're we're just betting on the future. So the fact is that we aren't sure there's very little that we could possibly be sure of, because when we make a decision, there's luck involved. Um, so we don't know exactly where things will land, right? I mean, I can flip a coin and I know it's 50-50 heads or tails, but that doesn't mean that I'm sure that it will land heads or tails on the next flip, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's all sorts of hidden information. There's things that are hidden from view that we don't know that make it very hard for us to know for sure about whether our beliefs are exactly true. So when we say I'm not sure, we're actually better representing what our state of knowledge is, which necessarily is going to make us a better decision maker. But I I think the reason why we're so averse to that is, first of all, it starts in school, because if you get a test and you write, I'm not sure on it, the teacher's going to fail you, which I'm very sad about. (laughs) Um, So I don't recommend that to the kids at home to put I'm not sure on their test. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, (laughs) But I think that one of the things that we've really been taught Mm -hmm. is that in order to be a critical, excuse me, In order to be a credible communicator, we have to express our opinions with absolute and utter certainty and the highest level of confidence possible. And that will actually make us really credible. Annie, while you go into this in in just great detail in the book, would you give us a, a very quick overview of just some of the techniques you give us for making for more effectively thinking in bets and making better decisions? I love the Ulysses contracts, the uh, uh, backcasting future, all that stuff. But can you just give us a little overview? Sure. So I'll give you a few things. One is um, express your uncertainty in the way that you talk. So uh, what I sort of recommend is if you have some idea, like uh, if you're saying Citizen Kane won best picture, instead of announcing that with 100% surety, um, announce what your level of certainty around that is. So for me, it might be Citizen Kane won Best Picture, and I, I'm about a six out of 10 on that, right? Or I'm 60% sure mm-hmm. that that's true. People are averse to saying that because they think, oh, I have to be so certain about everything. But the reason why that's such a good strategy is uh, manyfold. The first is that um, uh, 
people will actually believe you more because it means that you've actually thought about it. Um, but here's the most important thing as a strategy for becoming a better decision maker is it invites people into a collaboration with you. So when you announce things with absolute certainty, there's two reasons why they might not share information that's relevant to you back. Uh, reason number one is they might be embarrassed because they think they're wrong. And so now they don't tell you something that might be really, really relevant to the belief or the decision that you have. The other is that they might not want to embarrass you because they think you're wrong. Um, so once you open the door to saying sort of 60%, um, what happens is that you're inviting people to be your collaborators and to offer up helpful information to you that might help you to update your beliefs better or be a better decision maker. It, it, it signals a certain open-mindedness. So that's number one. And what that means is that you're trying to create people around you who are going to help you be a better decision maker. They're going to fill in your blind spots. They're going to check your biases. They're going to encourage you to be open, more open-minded. And I highly recommend forming a really good decision pod mm -hmm. and starting to express yourself this way. So that's really strategy number one. Strategy number two that you just mentioned is Ulysses contracts. Um, and you can think about Ulysses contracts as binding yourself to a good decision. So in the book, I talk about back to the future, right? So I say we, all we are ever taught is that Marty McFly shouldn't run into some other version of Marty McFly or the world is going to explode. Um, but actually, it's really good when you allow past Marty and future Marty and present Marty all to sort of work together um, almost as your own decision pod in order to make better decisions. And it's that recognition, what, what a Ulysses contract does. So it comes from the Odyssey, um, Homer's The Odyssey. Um, mm -hmm. the, his Roman name was Ulysses, but Odysseus was, was the Greek name. And as people might recall, Odysseus has to go on this journey to try to get back to Penelope. And there's all sorts of um, obstacles in the way and dangers in the way. And one of them is the island of the sirens. And when the sirens sing their song, um, any man who hears the song will steer the ship toward the, shoal, uh, the, the shore, which is very, very rocky, and it will split the ship apart, and it will be certain death. So Ulysses recognizes that the future version of him who is steering by the shore will most certainly steer into the shore upon hearing the siren song. So he asks his crew to put wax in their ears so they can't hear the song. And Ulysses, who does want to hear the song, asks them to tie his hands behind the mast. Now, what that does is it stops that future version of him from being able to actually act on the impulse right. to steer toward the shore. And that's really what a Ulysses contract is. It's sitting and saying, what are the obstacles that I might have in the future that I might act on? And how do I bind myself in a way that will make it so future me can't actually act on it? Very, very simple example, a ride sharing service on your way to the bar as opposed to driving your own car. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. This, uh, and that was great. And there's so much more. And on page 65, you provide an excellent list also of inventory, how we came to our conclusions and all, all these different, I mean, this book again is so f uh, fantastic, but I want to end with something that to me is one of the biggest lessons I took from your book. It's a game changer. It's a life changer and everything good that can come as a result. I want you to explain why, why it is that a lot of good can come from asking ourselves the question, wanna bet, before we make a statement or write a tweet or post something on Facebook. I am so happy that you asked me that. So it has to do with this implicit versus explicit, right? Like 
implicitly we're all betting on our beliefs, right? Uh, that's what decisions are, but we don't really think about it explicitly enough. And when we think about it explicitly, what it does is it makes us pull back and do the step of thinking, well, why do I know this? How sure am I of it? Where have I heard this from before? What other relevant information do I have? What could someone else say to me where they might uh, be able to win a bet against me? Because the interesting thing is that the person who wins in the long run in a bet is not the one who just is always reaffirming their own beliefs, right? It's the person who's developing the most accurate view of the world, the person who's making the best decisions based on those more accurate beliefs. So what, what happens when someone says, want to bet to you? You step back and you say, wait, maybe I'm not 100% sure. Ah, uh, Yes. Um, and that's actually a really, really good thing because it causes you to be more open-minded to other people's opinions. It causes you to be an information seeker. And here's the thing. It causes you to moderate the way that you express your opinions in a way that not only serves yourself because it's more accurate, but it also serves your listeners because you stop infecting your listeners with beliefs that you haven't properly vetted yourself yet. I am now doing this with myself. I am asking myself, want to bet before I say anything with certainty? And it is already making a huge, huge difference in my life. Annie Duke is author of the awesome Thinking in Bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. Her website is AnnieDuke.com, where you can learn more about her, her speaking services, and other resources, including her newsletter. All of that is listed in the show notes. Uh... Go. You can get the book right at the at the site. There's also a direct link in the show notes to the book, or you can go right on Amazon.com. And I know I've I've said this before, but again, this is a book you really, really, really want to get and absorb. AnnieDuke.com, or go to directly to Amazon. Annie, thank you very much. Wishing you the best of continued success, great decisions, and great results. Well, thank you. I, I hope we run into each other again. And I feel like we, we met on Twitter and now I've got <laughs> to have a conversation with you, which is always such a nice result of some of those Twitter interactions. Uh, thank you, Eddie. Main takeaway I receive from Annie is that to the degree we make our bets or decisions properly, that's the degree to which we increase the odds of the desired result. Though there's never any guarantee luck still comes into play. And what about her question regarding asking yourself, want to bet before offering an opinion? Will you join me in taking that personal challenge? Please feel free to write to me at bob at berg.com and let me know. We might even share your email on an upcoming program. Remember, the go-giver makes an excellent gift to those in your life in order to help them lead better sell more, and touch the lives of more people in positive and significant ways. Visit thegogiver.com and check out the expanded edition of the book. And while you're there, check out John David Manns and my follow-up parable, The Go-Giver Leader. And the newest parable in the Go-Giver series, The Go-Giver Influencer, will be released on April 10th. You can even pre-order it now. Check out the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and provide a review on iTunes. Visit thegogiver.com slash reviews. I enjoy reading every review, and your review will also help others to much more easily find this show. That's all for today. The Go-Giver podcast is brought to you by thegogiver.com. Visit www.thegogiver.com and get our free special report, The Go-Giver Way, Five Principles for Creating a Culture of Excellence. That's thegogiver.com. Stop on by 
Thank you so much for joining me. And until next time, I'm Bob Berg. Make it a great day.